It's wonderful to have you all here. Thank you very much for um, being patient uh, with our technical issues. And it's great to start the Hoon again for 2023. And we started with a bang in a way we weren't expecting, mostly, which was the Prime Minister resigned yesterday or announced she would resign and completely, it seems, out of the blue. Uh, although I have spoken mm. at various points last year and suggested that it was a, there was a low chance, but a real chance that she would do this in part because um, the level of intensity of that role generally, but certainly in the last five years is so mm. has been so high that anyone, I was sort of amazed, actually, I said this to someone yesterday that I was amazed that the prime minister was still standing up straight after the last five me. years. Yes, exactly. And um, and uh, turned out that, um, as she said, uh, there was nothing left in the tank. Now, this has completely thrown open our political environment, not only because is the Prime Minister going, but because Grant Robertson, who really has been very much a partner at her side. Pat, we'll get not, to that question too, Pat. Yes. Yeah, and on. not just a partner at her side, uh, while Prime Minister and he was Finance Minister. But right from the start of their political careers, they really have been Batman and Robin together. For most of that time, uh, Grant Robertson was the Batman and Jacinda Ardern was the Robin. Uh, twice, 2011 and 2014, Grant Robertson won the vote in the caucus to be the next Labour Party mm. leader, but was gazumped when uh, the vote was put to the wider uh, Labour Party membership. And he says that he won't stand again. I suspect and he's wise to do that, isn't he? Isn't that isn't that because the Labour is it is it true, Bernard, that the particularly the Maori caucus said there is absolutely no way that we can have a gay an openly gay prime minister? I haven't heard that. I know that there has there was concern in twenty eleven and twenty fourteen from some in the Pacific Island um, communities mm -hmm. about um, uh, grants. Um, status but uh i i must say i hadn't heard much of it from within the labor party recently and i actually i think that if the labor party caucus had been given the chance and he had said right up front yes i want the job he would have had it in a shot and i noticed that there were at least two mps david parker and another mp from wellington who actually came out in public and said we would love it if grant actually changed his mind and decided to be mm. the leader of the labor party he's clearly mm. the most accomplished experienced and politically astute and active of the uh, senior labor members but he does lack charisma i don't buy that um i think that uh he a would wipe the floor with uh, Christopher Luxon in a series of debates. Um, he's certainly the strongest political performer in um, Parliament. And um, I'm not sure charisma is something that New Zealand voters actually love. We don't like the vision thing either. We just want someone to do a, a good job who we believe and and who we think is um, being authentic. And for a long time, it was Jacinda Ardern. Yeah. And so um, I... That's a very good point, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, at some point, we have to bring in poor old Robert there, because otherwise his gin and tonic is going to go warm. And also, because he, you know, <laughs> we, we might come back to this, because I, I shat on um, Sean Plunkett. Well, I wish I had actually literally shat on Sean Plunkett. I, I criticised Sean Plunkett on Twitter today for having about half a dozen old men talking about Jacinda Ardern today with no women. 
Um, so could we, well, I think we should move, if you don't mind, Bernard, to, to um, our actual expert and, yes. and not just take reckons because theoretically, Robert doesn't give us just reckons. He gives, gives us PhD level reckons, right? Yeah, no, it's um, it's great to have you there, uh, Robert. What, what do you think um, the, you. the departure of Jacinda Ardern uh, means for um, New Zealand's status in the world? And what, what do you think her legacy might be from a f- sort of foreign affairs national mm-hmm. um, a national uh, reputation point of view? I, I think uh, Jacinda Ardern, I, I think Jacinda Ardern has enormously boosted uh, New Zealand's international reputation, like it or dislike it, I, I few prime ministers have, have made the sort of international impact uh, that she has, and I think it was really due to the fact that, first of all, she has a charismatic personality, um, easy charm in front of the camera, is a very clear communicator, uh, someone who's pretty easy with technology and uses it well. At the same time. Um, the timing of her leadership coincided with a much more interconnected world where her message could resonate around the world in a way that it perhaps couldn't even 10 years earlier. And I think that really came into sharp focus for many people around the world with her government's response to the Christchurch terror attack of March 2019, when she showed a combination of qualities that made an enormous impression internationally and domestically. And that, that those qualities were as follows. First of all, ability to empathise and reach out at a time when many people were really hurting, particularly in Christchurch, and particularly the families affected, Fifty more than 51 people killed in that appalling attack. But it wasn't just a question of feeling their pain. She also combined empathy with an ability to take decisive action to ameliorate the sources of that pain. She banned automatic weapons and also very quickly launched a joint international initiative with France to curb online extremism, the so-called Christchurch call. And um, one thing that really struck me is from that point onwards, whenever I was having contact with foreign colleagues, and foreign friends, they would often make very favourable comparisons uh, between um, what Jacinda Ardern and 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 and, fate, and say, "Oh, I wish we had a leader like her at home." Mm. This was replicated time and time again, and I think also the initial handling of COVID nineteen and also her response to uh, the White Island tragedy, where sixteen people died. You know, I, I know many people said that she's quit after five and a half years or so, but she crammed uh, a lot of events occurred during that five and a half years. And many of them were unprecedented for New Zealand leaders. And I think, you know, in politics, um, we often hear what politics, uh, politicians project what they're going to do. They tell us what they're going to do if elected. But you know what often makes or unbreak or unmakes her reputation is how people react to unanticipated events, those events which they haven't prepared for. And I think that's what really um, gave Jacinda Ardern quite a high international reputation. Many people impressed by her political instincts, which you can't train into a person, and also 
her ability to act in a measured but firm way. And I, I think that's uh, I think her legacy is going to be considerable. I think whoever follows her, not just as leader of the Labour Party, but whoever takes the reins in this country, we might be the national leader after the next election. I think more will be expected of New Zealand internationally. And I think Jacinda Ardern may have played a part yeah, in good actually projecting us in a way that we hadn't anticipated. Good on you, Professor Patman, because in, in the, as I told you, in the North and South, I say at the end, I say Robert Patman said, vote Jacinda. Well, it may have came out that I way, but, but uh, I, didn't. I can assure you I am bipartisan. And yeah. I've tried to say that. Um, me too. Me too. I just, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think sometimes people in this country underestimate the impact that she had. Uh, I, I teach US foreign policy. It's a country I'm deeply interested in. And it, it's very striking that when Jacinda Ardern has gone to countries like the United States, there's been really tremendous interest in her visit. Mm. And um, in a sense, as Prime Minister, New Zealand, in the in, in the perceptions of the rest of the world, have become something of a minor power rather than just a small state. And it, yeah. it, and she's also led on issues such a tried to lead on issues on like issues like climate change, but also indigenous rights, both domestically and globally. And I I think, and she's doing it. Seems to me, Robert, though for, for, she's doing it from a domestic New Zealand legislation point of view, that this, I, I had a little contretemps today, well, when I say contretemps, I responded to a ridiculous David Seymour uh, tweet about the um, idea of a bloody um, uh, vote on the Treaty of Waitangi. It's already a bloody treaty, for Christ's sake. You know, mm. at least we have a treaty. This This whole thing of how you deal with Indigenous concern, with First Nation people is really, really important. And New Zealand is leading the way. Mm. It might not always feel comfortable to um, us Pakiha. I mean, uh, you're, you're, a, an ext- you know, you're a foreign Pakiha, but, you know, we'll accept you as well 200 years too late. But, you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, she's dealing with really fundamental issues, or we are dealing with really mm. fundamental And she seemed to do it in a quite an elegant fashion. Dangerous, yeah, and I think her appointment as Nanaya Mahuta, as foreign minister, was really interesting. Yeah. And and basically is in sync with the observations you're making. I think uh, the prime minister recognised, um, the former prime minister recognised, uh, which is still prime minister at the moment, yeah. um, Jacinda Ardern, saw the connection, the linkage between some of these domestic things, how we did with climate change at home and our credibility overseas. Yeah. Likewise, our ability to stand up for human rights, whether it be in relation to China she also recognised that credibility depended in part on us fulfilling our commitments to Maori people at home So, and Indigenous rights. So I think there's an interesting... I think the legacy has been, in international terms, is considerable from Jacinda Ardern's five and a half years of leadership. OK, which, which uh, leads to Bernard's question. But I just... Yeah, OK, go ahead, Bernard. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, I'm just wondering, Robert, whether um, she now can look forward to a, a future role in international politics. Um, Helen Clark obviously uh, uh, got to a very high level and uh, was unsuccessful in getting the UN Secretary General's job. But um, is it realistic for Jacinda Ardern to aspire to some sort of role like that? If she wants it, it's entirely realistic. Uh, she's got 
a lot of supporters in places like Washington, um, particularly in the current administration. And um, she's impressed a great deal of people. And, you know, the Chinese are very well disposed towards the prime minister as well. So, you know, uh, I, I don't think we should underestimate that. Uh, the question is, does, does she want it? Um, and it won't happen immediately. I think she's seeking something of a break from politics for a while, mm. whether it be domestic or international. Good on her. Uh, to, yeah. to take stock. It, it, she's been it, in a very demanding role. And uh, as we know, with the social media, it's also a role that brings with it a certain degree of vitriol as well. Mm. So it, it, whoever gets the job it, for the leader of the Labour Party and also, for that matter, leader of the National Party, leader of the ACT Party, etc., it... it I, I think increasingly... Uh, <laughs> if the leader of the ACT Party has a role in international affairs, I will eat my trousers because I've sold them with a hat, or I'll eat my baseball cap. All right. Probably as, about as, as like, realistic as, like as me like getting that. a gin and tonic at the University of Otago, I guess. <laughs> we'll fix that, Robert. We'll fix that. Um, and and on the, that international front, are there any particular roles coming up anytime soon that... Uh, the PM could uh, have a have a go at um, because often these things are about timing, and they're also about accidents of um, regional politics. Mm. Um, one of the the sort of uh, problems for Helen Clark in getting it was that you know often there's perceptions about it's the turn of a particular part of the world, um, but I wonder if uh, uh, Helen Clark's early career. Um, uh, uh, views about the United States, which were noticed in the United States, um, whether um, Jacinda Ardern's relatively, you know, conventional pro-U.S. Um, view w- might help her in uh, in in the future if there if there was one of these roles that came up. I, I think one of the things that might help her is not just whether she's well received in the U.S. or China. That's important. There are two superpowers. I think what. Jacinda Ardern has also done, which I think has been widely missed. I think she's shown that you can be a leader of a relatively small state and yet be quite internationally influential. Mm. And I I think that's a bit of a a game changer because in the sense that um, one of her legacies may be to empower and embolden other small states and middle act middle powers to take on a more active role in global politics so uh, i i think um she'd be getting a lot of support if she wanted to go down that route um and she certainly has she's put a lot of emphasis on kindness in in the way she approaches politics and um uh it's another thing which i think probably sells well overseas as well because i think many democracies do people do experience a certain cynicism about some of how their elected representatives behave. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, my, I, I, I take her speech, which she gave yesterday uh, at, at face value, that there's no real reason behind her going. I think she's just had enough and she was honest yeah. enough to, t- I, I believe she took stock. She's got a young family and she decided that this was the best time to go. And um and I was just thinking about your earlier comments, you know, Peter and yourself, about Grant Robertson. He does seem to be the logical person, but um, we'll just have to wait and see because, uh, um, yeah, he, he's always struck me as a very impressive politician. Is he a gay, 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 English? Is this what you're saying? 
Well, actually, I don't have any idea about what Bill English's sexuality is, and nor do I care, or nor do I care particularly about, about grants. But before we, again, push you into areas of which aren't your expertise, such as New Zealand housing, um, I have been pretty appalled by uh, Guterres's, um, Antonio Guterres's, I think, rather pathetic uh, conduct as the UN Secretary General, and you have said before how weak the uh, Security Council mm. structure has been. Uh, Helen Clark, I think, mentioned this today as well. Helen, rather oddly, I thought, said, oh, there are no jobs available. But uh, I could see her actually going right to the top almost instantly. But and <laughs> funny enough, I, <laughs> I, had a, I may have had, I didn't have a couple of drinks last night, of course, but I was vaguely thinking, I, I heard, um, you know, some of the NATO people and you could just, you know, she just has so much credibility, partly because mm. of her authenticity. And I, and I may have confused authenticity with charisma before. Um, but could you not see her? Uh, does she need some kind of interim role? And, and again, I don't want to make this, I don't want to make this one of those the criticisms of her, which is, oh, she's always been on some kind of Helen Clark conveyor belt. I think one of the difficulties for Jacinda Ardern, you mentioned the UN uh, as being a possibility, a secretary general, but she would encounter the same problem of Helen Clark, which would be that it's no secret that New Zealand actually wants to reform um, the system of veto, the, the permanent membership that the vetoes mm. have, the, the P5, they have this right of veto, which means they can block anything they don't like. They're not in a hurry to get rid of that. And I oh, think, why, and why would they be? You know, no. So I think there would be limits at the moment to how far some member, the permanent five, would be keen on Jacinda. They might like her as a person, but they might think, uh, can they really? Is she really a figurehead figure? Um, possibly not. And so, in that sense, uh, you mean I she think, might be a bit too active? Well, I think she might be seen as competent and perhaps independent on issues like the veto mm. and um yeah and also she would be quite a formidable figure because she'd be quite capable of winning the general assembly behind her on this issue i mean let's be quite clear the overwhelming bulk of countries in the general assembly want to see the veto gone it's a huge frustration within the united nations and for but that reason so, but the veto robert is so central to the post-war settlement, isn't it? Yes, but that that was a long time ago. And the, shall, the we do, shall we do an entire become... podcast? I can see it now. Shall we do an entire podcast on the future of the United Nations with the three of us? Well, I, I, I think what I would is say big... is I, I, I think it's uh, at the centre of the UN Security Council's dysfunction, and that's been underlined by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think uh, that may be a bit of a barrier for Jacinda Ardern in the short term, I'm not even sure she wants that sort of role. Um, no, exactly, exactly. But so it, I think it's assume, probably, we're we probably being a bit presumptuous does, yeah. here. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, Robert, thank you very much. I promised that I'd, I'd try and get you away by 5.30, and thank, thank you very much for thank coming you. on. It's lovely Can to see you again. Can you get tonics into Eden at all, in fact? We are going to make this happen. It's a, it's a done deal. Um, see oh, you, Robert. It's really lovely we'll, to see you again. Good to see you guys. I've and missed see you, you next week. I'll see you soon. All the yeah. best. Oh. 
All right, he's inviting himself on. I think he's, oh, that's great. Jesus Christ, Bernard. I wasn't prepared for him to become a become a presumptuous Patman. Yeah, I've only, I've only I've only got you to be the to, to acknowledge me as the co-host after a fucking year of doing this bollocks. Um, this is great to see you, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, um, for those Bernard, who are interested in um, the arcane but fascinating politics of the United Nations and how people get chosen. There was a very good movie that came out a few years ago, five years ago. Oh, my year with one? No, um, this is a movie uh, in which it was a documentary where Gaylene Preston, a uh, quite renowned mm -hmm. New Zealand filmmaker, spent a year essentially as doing a fly-on-the-wall documentary of Helen Clark and her uh, a campaign to get the top job at the UN. It's called My Year with Helen, and I'd highly recommend it as a, a movie um, that goes behind the scenes of this campaign to win the top job at the Gosh, UN. I wish, I'd read, I wish I'd watched that before I wrote my last North and South column about oh, yeah. Helen about the history of the Foreign Office, where I described oh, the Foreign Service, what it was, MFAT, which is a really disgusting uh, acronym for it, but, or initialism. Actually, no, it's an acronym because you can pronounce it MFAT, um, where it, it turned out that a friend of mine, Gerard Van Behemen, had invented this thing called New Zealand Breakfasts. And they when, it, when New Zealand was running the security, was the, was they had the presidency of the Security Council or chairmanship of the Security Council, Gerard invented um, these breakfasts and apparently the Russians thought this is bloody brilliant and they've continued to do them. They were New Zealand breakfasts with Vogel's bread and you know various other New Zealandy things in that incredibly expensive and completely justified flat in New York. Very you need to read my news. Nobody reads, nobody reads North uh, and South. You need to read my North and South no, column. They do, they do. No, so Peter's North and South column includes the anecdote about Vogel bread and the United Nations, which is um, something I wasn't expecting it to say. It most certainly on the does. Today. Breakfast is the great weapon of New Zealand diplomacy, as if we didn't didn't know. Um, Bernard, yes. tell us about this, because I, I, I do want to be, if we're going to continue talking about Jacinda for a while, because yep. I think that some of the media coverage in the last 24 hours has been pretty crap in New Zealand. Somebody from Germany asked me today for a really good um long read about why she had to go um i came across and I, I hadn't come across her before a woman called rachel smelly today who had written a piece in october smally yeah smally i'm sorry in, yep. in uh, nbr which predicted that she might go although it also contained so i thought rachel's piece was very good except that it had this crap and sorry there's been a bit of about this today about the state of new zealand's debt position their deaths in COVID, and all this kind of stuff but on the other hand, it was pretty good about just saying the exhaustion might take over. Or yeah. did Jacinda decide that she couldn't push through reform of the cabinet, that the cabinet reshuffle would not be accepted by the Maori caucus? What are what are what's the what's the actual political chemistry of this as opposed to our focus on Jacinda Ardern's own personal exhaustion with it, please? Yeah, I, I think the personal does matter. But also, it's worth knowing the context of where we are politically and why there is not just exhaustion amongst the public about COVID, but actually inside the party and the government, there is an exhaustion and a frustration that the government really can't address the problems that the country has because of commitments that Jacinda Ardern has made. So, for example, her April 2019 commitment, I will never do a capital gains tax in my political lifetime. And then the various 
um, uh, uh, rulings out of a wealth tax. Mm-hmm. In fact, in any uh, new big tax increase in the 2020 election campaign has has really frustrated a lot of people and has left on, the on her side who would otherwise be on her side. That's yeah. right. And uh, privately, you'll never hear anyone say this publicly, but privately, it was one of the few times where Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson were not happy about uh, something that each of them had done. And I know, having asked Grant Robertson in public several times, did he also commit to never doing a capital gains tax in his political lifetime? Mm. And he said no. And my understanding... What, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Just say so, it again. So, so Jacinda Ardern said in 2019, yeah. I'll never do a capital gains tax in my lifetime, having campaigned for it three times. And... Um, uh, after Winston Peters said he wouldn't accept it, that effectively ruled out for another generation, given her dominance at the top of the Labour Party, any move to tax mm. land, mm. residential land, which is the fundamental problem we have. And so her ruling that out and also ruling out wealth tax and also her commitment um, under pressure many times to not uh, changing the government's um uh, size in terms of mm-hmm. not increasing the share of GDP going to taxes, deciding not to uh, invest much more heavily in infrastructure because of yeah. the... It's this classic dilemma that progressive governments face, Labour governments face, whether here or in the UK, that that <laughs> weirdly, as we know statistically, they are more financially prudent, ultimately, partly because they feel as though they're in a straitjacket, right, Bernard? I mean, this is certainly the case in the UK. Yeah, and this is the the problem that the centre-left have faced over the last decade or so, is that in an attempt to win over the sort of middle vote and uh, not scare the horses, um, they've committed to... Christ, um, do horses have a vote now? Arbitrary rules, which meant that um, they couldn't address the fundamental Mm. issues. So... um, uh, and one way we can we can um, talk a bit more about this, um, Peter. You've got the host rights at the moment, so I'm wondering. Oh, are you going to you want me to show that chart? Well, can uh, you keep talking? You mean which one? The debt chart, the, the uh, OECD debt chart. Chart. We can we can do that later, but I'm hoping you can um, elevate Sumeroni uh, to the status of a panelist. She's just Jesus. turned up as an attendee, and because oh, of my technical sure dramas, um, if you go into the attendees list and you see. <laughs> Jesus there. Christ, this is just so professional. I just Yes, yes, yes. Um because of my shift from No, 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 I... no, no, no. It's shift from the I think look, can you imagine how we used to do this when we were trying to do this when we were at Reuters filing um you know copy from fucking Tierra del Fuego or somewhere yes, in the middle yes. of a war, although I don't recall there being a war in Tierra del Fuego. The fact that we can now do all this kind of thing with vague Oh, Sue Maroney, there she is, allowed yes, yes. to talk. Oh, my God. What happens if so, I allow her so, to talk? She's no, no, no. If not only ele- allowed to talk. No, no, if you elevate yeah, I know. I, I yep. think I have to allow her to talk first. And now can I... Elevate her to panellist, maybe. I don't know whether I have the power to do that, Bernard. God, I'd uh, like to. Hang on a sec. Uh, no. Uh, oh, this, this, this is, is a, a learning great, experience. This is a great political discussion. Who has the power to elevate me? Oh, yes, I, I you're there, verbally. We have, have you, we have have you collect- switched on your video, sir? Yes. Please go ahead. Oh, um, 
that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Sue, for, for dialing in. And it's it's a real pleasure to elevate you um, <laughs> uh, to, to the in, into the uh, well, prime into... role of, of panelist with Peter Bale, who's my co-host here, who's talking to us from um, north of Auckland. I'm talking to you from the Kapiti Coast. And um, also, Sue, Sue right? we're really glad that you're a woman because we've been we've been about to discuss misogyny and you know, even speaking as a feminist, it's extremely difficult to do that as a chat. I'm glad I'm a woman too, just on the yes. record. <laughs> and I also support the idea about horses gaining the right to vote. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we no, clip-clop. That's yeah. right. There'll be um, no hanging chads with those. So so just for those people in our audience uh, who have not um, uh, been keeping an eye on our local political scene for the last uh, couple of decades, Sue Maroney is a former Labour MP, uh, was um, uh, an MP for four terms up until 2017. So I was very familiar with the, the background and the history of the Labour Party. And... This is, you moved, you moved Bernard. Yes. Uh, the background and the history of the Labour Party and um, and also is now the CEO of uh, Com Community Law Aotearoa. So very familiar with how the um, various community groups and um, uh, those dealing with the dramas inside New Zealand society have seen the government. Um, Sue, what was your first impression upon hearing yesterday that the Prime Minister was going to resign? Well, first of all, um, Bernard, apologies. I, I don't have a way to, to put my camera on, but that's probably a good thing, right? Um, <laughs> so look, my, my first impression was, because um, I actually um, just by pure accident watched it live, um, because in, in my role as uh, CEO for Community Law Centres or Aotearoa, I've got some things to be speaking to the minister, Prime Minister about in the mm. next few months. And so I thought, oh, you know, when I saw it flash up that she was going to do her first press statement, I thought, well, you know, I'd better just get an idea of where her head is at after the break. Um, so that when we engage with her, you know, we're, we're, we're on the same page to some extent. And um, yeah, then within the first couple of sentences, I realised that I was about to watch her resignation. Um, look, I, I I wasn't surprised. I had um, I had actually been predicting that she was going to do that late last year, and then she didn't. So over the, over the holidays, I thought, well, your political radar's off, girl. You got that wrong. Um, and, and then it happened. Um, but what I was more surprised and, and quite shocked about was um, that Grant Robertson ruled himself mm. I did not see that coming um, at all. So, what do you think's going on there? I mean, I mean, it's a tough job, and he's seen it up close and personal, and he's had two knockbacks from the uh, the Labour membership. But what, what do you think's going on there? Because he, on the face of it, is clearly the obvious successor. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. It's you know, it's it's perplexing to me um, because I I feel like what I've been watching over the last twelve months was was a positioning of Grant becoming the, mm. the natural, um, you know, next next leader from Jacinda whenever that should occur. So it's, it is it is perplexing. I, I don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, the, the, we know that saying that a week is a long time in politics. This is exactly that week they're talking about when they say that. Um, anything could happen. Uh, you know, when I woke up yesterday morning, I didn't expect to be having these discussions about who would be the next Prime Minister of New Zealand next week. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's, a, it's shifting sands. Um, but, you know, I think one of the really interesting things to watch in this space is Labour 
having its first go at using a very fresh constitutional change to choose its new leader, who happens also to be the new prime minister. Um, that, uh, you know, that was debated quite fiercely, uh, oh, a little fiercely, actually, if I'm honest, um, at the Labour conference in 2021. And, um, you know, part of the debate was, well, look, don't worry about the fact that this new rule would make, you know, would give more power to the caucus to decide the leadership rather than the membership of the party. Because, look, it's probably never going to be used because historically it's been almost, you know, Labour leaders have never got two thirds of the vote in in the caucus. So Mm. never going to be used. Don't worry about it. And um, 18 months later, here we have um, a, a quite, a, you know, an obviously determined effort from the caucus to ensure that they actually do find two thirds support within themselves to determine who the next leader is. Because you were uh, right there in the midst of it in 2011 and 2014, when Grant Robertson uh, was, um, if not the clear choice, then obviously the winner in the caucus, and then uh, was sort of gazumped uh, when it went out to the wider membership. Do you think there's a fear inside Labour that they want to avoid a repeat of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I've always been a strong proponent of um, social democratic parties being, in fact, as democratic as they possibly can. I think that goes with the territory. And and I think that, you know, our whole values and principles as a social democratic party would say that the more people involved in important decisions like that, the, the more likely it's to be a good decision, good and robust decision. Um, so, you know, this is this is kind of, you know, the, this going back to more more the caucus making the decision is, is quite a, a foreign concept to me. Um, but, yeah, it, it will be I, I don't know what's what has driven it. I think that there is there is that fear that, you know, there's a the loss of control from the caucus about um, who they end up having to work with if the party membership has too much say. Uh, It's it's a curious thing, really. Um, But it'll be the first test of whether they actually can work to get uh, 66% of that caucus voting for one person. And that's going to require a lot of discussion and a lot of honesty and a lot of transparency amongst the caucus because, you know, I've certainly seen situations where MPs have held their cards very close to their chest about who in fact they will vote for in a caucus vote and sometimes they declare that they're voting for one person and vote for another so um you know is it effectively the Jeremy Corbyn problem that Labour was trying to avoid by by coming up with that formula that that is the justification for it Mm -hmm. Uh, the justification is that caucus knows best um, and that the party membership t- sometimes get a bit carried away with, um, you know, uh, looking for ex- more extreme kind of um, leadership than what the general population will tolerate. Uh, look, my, my view is quite different to that. I actually feel that the more, the further out you go from the parliamentary environment, the more likely you get to get um, a, you know, people who Hijacking more. Are, are more reflective of the general population. <laughs> Um, and, and how they will receive a particular leader. Um, that, that's just my personal view. That you, I you say that's a good thing. Yeah, I, th- I think so, um, because I've also witnessed, um, you know, people I don't think will be shocked about this, but I've, you know, I've also witnessed people making decisions on leadership votes, not because they think that person is the best person to lead their party or the country, but because 
if they vote for that person, they will get a particular promotion or they'll get a particular mm. role. So yeah. there's quite a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's potential for conflict. Of, there's a significant con- conflict of interest um, for MPs choosing mm. leader. So, so, so I, I, I asked, wonder, sorry, Ben, oh, Jesus Christ, I said, you go, we, you we, we have a secret back channel where, yes, yes. Just, could you go help us answer a couple of questions that are critical to this? And I, and I you know, Bernard and I, this is not a party political broadcast on support in support of Jacinda Ardern or some sort of wake. I mean, but there has been some admiration and respect that we've all expressed right through the two years of us doing this podcast, just you know, when things have been good and things have been bad or things have been well handled. How much do you think misogyny has played a part in her decision? And I guess, so, or, or I'm sorry, because actually I've seen too many people ask today to d- d- dive inside the head of Jacinda Ardern. How big a factor do you think misogyny has become in New Zealand politics in the last three years, three or four years? Oh. Well, in my experience, there is no doubt. Oh, look, I'll start. I'll start from a diff- quite slightly different place, if you don't mind. Thank you. Um, no, of course. I, mean, I, I think that all politicians are facing an increasingly hostile situation, whether they, whatever gender they may be, or whatever ethnicity mm. they may be. Um, so, you know, when you go into those roles, of course, you expect robust debate. You expect to be challenged on, on your ideas and your theories, and you expect people to want you to represent their point of view because you're a representative, right? So that that's all accepted, I believe. But what should not be tolerated are personal attacks or attacks on people's families. Um, that that is the the bit that should not be tolerated, no matter what per- a person's gender or ethnicity is. I also know from personal experience that there is a particular um, uh, there is a particularly nasty edge to the comments that are made towards females who dare. Mm take up leadership roles <laughs> um yeah. you know there that that gets under the skin of of misogynists and misogynists are not nice people and and um and so you you have to bear their wrath um it's it's not acceptable As, so um we've seen what's happened in the last you know four or five uh, years in and around the government uh and you, you've obviously seen behind the scenes with uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, when you were MPs together. What do you think her legacy is? And and also, what surprised you about uh, how she, she 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 was as Prime Minister? Oh, I'll probably start with the latter. Um, Look, I mean, I, I've known Jacinda for a long period of time, and because I live in the same part of the world where where she was brought up, mm. um, you know, we've, we've spent a bit of, bit of time together. Um, you know, she's a Morrinsville girl. I'm a someone's already made reference to the fact I'm a Matamata girl. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's we 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 kind of we have a uh, we have a we share a some understanding like childhood experiences. <laughs> um, having been brought up in, in quite you know nas- strong national held. Um, mm. parts country um and uh i rated her from the you know i I always rated her but when i heard her maiden speech i was blown away um i had never heard such a professional articulate um concise uh clear you know just clear direction um maiden speech and i've listened to a number of them over the years and and i remember i remember saying to helen clark at the time oh i think we've just heard the speech of a future Labour leader. Um, what what then kind of happened is that 
I don't think opposition was really Jacinda's natural territory. I think she found opposition really hard. And mm. and I, I, I saw her, um, you know, at, at times it seemed like she really lacked confidence. And that, that was my concern about her taking over the leadership. I, I just wasn't sure that she could make that step up. But boy, did she make it. Once she, you know, once she had that mandate to be the Labour leader, um, she was just absolutely determined and um, and you just saw that steely grit um, within her. So, you know, so that's, that's, that's the interesting thing that I've observed is that sometimes it's not until people are in those leadership positions that mm. you really get to see how they perform. And, and that, that's always the risky thing, isn't it, is you don't know until people are in those positions how they're going to adapt and how they're, they're going to actually go and and she just uh, she made this huge step up and it was it was really powerful and um and I had no doubts from that moment on so um yeah so that was great um uh, in terms of her legacy I actually think her enduring legacy will be for about forever on both the international and domestic stage changing the way we think about political leadership mm-hmm. um you know she took uh, a very old formula of what we expect in terms of political leaders, and she completely shook it up, and she 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 made it her own style, and she was you know she was very authentic in the way that she did that. She, she you know she proved that you can you can be brave, and determined, and empathetic all at the same time. You know mm-hmm. you can be authentic, um, you can be professional, dignified, and humorous all at the same time. She she was all of those things. And and I think that um, you know that that was celebrated both locally, certainly initially, and and is still celebrated internationally. And I think it's a great legacy to leave that um, you know you can give birth um, and raise a child in office and be extraordinarily effective in your job. Um, you know, she's been a prime minister that has not only been able to respond and been right across the detail of pretty much every portfolio area, but also that skill of being able to yeah. get the strategy to look at the big picture at the same time. It's an extraordinary skill, actually. And she yeah. did all of that magnificently. So may I interrupt you? Not interrupt you. You came to a good end there. Thank you. Um, and again, we, we we said at the beginning, this was not going to be some sort of valedictory thing and, and certainly not a uh, an obituary. Um, do you think that including COVID, the last couple of years, which has been very difficult, that this government, or possibly all progressive governments, have a problem with execution, that it is that their whole thing is to push change and that that's extremely difficult to do because they seem to have... There was a period when their execution was really strong, their explanation was very strong, and in the last couple of years, the government, and I don't just mean Jacinda Ardern, but the government as a whole has not necessarily been able to execute very well. Three Waters, um, health reform, merger of TV and Z. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, look, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's, it is quite perplexing because the, uh, um, the way that they built the narrative around the team of 5 million and the execution of all of that was, was superb. And then to not see them being able to lend that same set of um, skills to... Um, you know, uh, labour policy areas um, was is quite perplexing. But I would also, I would just note that that governments of all flavours around the world are struggling to work out how to deal with the post COVID 
yeah. you know, the way that people feel post-COVID about, about anything that governments might be doing. I'd, I'd also observe that, generally speaking, the progressive governments seem to be doing better in terms of outcomes post-COVID than, um, for example, the UK and some of those conservative governments that are making a complete hash of it. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it is perplexing, and I I, I think that um, the the narrative around three waters um, should have been uh, you know a relatively easy thing to sell around improving water quality and and um, and you know the infrastructure. Are you, are you, yeah, I just I was really struck by David Seymour today, which I, I wish I had been struck. If he could reach up as tall as I am, because I'm actually about the same height as him, or you know, I'm hoping he will one day take me for a ride in his Lotus, but. Um, his comment about the Treaty of Waitangi today, and, and it just this, uh, uh, are you concerned as I am as a New Zealander that that um, this division and the work that's been achieved in the last few years about Maoridom and the rise of Maoridom is now going to be both derailed and also become a political, um, a, a toxic political mechanism. Yeah, yeah, deeply concerned. And I think that along and I, you know, I arrived during the capital gains tax discussion, I was very interested in that, because, I, you know, it's a, it's another thing that I, I actually think that was a mistake um, from Jacinda was to rule that out. Um, but I'll, I'll now come back to your question. Um, you. I, I think that they, uh, yeah, you've, these are very, very um, strongly felt issues around nationhood, around democracy, around um, uh, around the rights of tangata whenua. And if you're going to if you're going to engage in moving that and and progress that agenda, you have to build a really strong narrative around why and how and um, and and diminish people's fears. Because you know, I find in my current role with community law centres or Aotearoa, um, you know, we're a partnership organisation, and um, and we haven't got that right yet, but mm. we trying to make it better all the time. And one of the questions I often have to have to ask people in that journey is, what is it that you fear? You know, what what are you fearful of? <laughs> can we just get it out on the table so we can talk yeah. about? It? Yeah, I think um, over over fifty white men are fearful of quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but tell me what you're not, actually... Not that I have any personal expertise in that matter. name but. it, um, because if we can't name it, we can't, you know, we can't address it. And more often than not, when you have that conversation, they, they, when and people are talking about it, they recognise for themselves that their fear actually isn't real. It's it's an imagined fear of, of you know, it's a fear of the unknown. Um, and we all get that from time to time. So, you know, you've got to be very, very careful when you're moving forward and making progress on those issues, you cannot just assume that everyone's on the same page as mm. you and um, and and just just bulldoze ahead because you can do more damage than good and you can put the agenda several years backwards. And and I do fear that that, that we're in that territory now. Uh, so just in 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 uh, in closing, um, you, you're very close to the ground of some of the issues um, with poverty, inequality in Aotearoa and You've you've written and commented extensively about um, the issues there. The prime minister was elected on a transformational uh, uh, set of promises, but on the face of it, some of those have not been delivered. What's what's your view about how she'll she'll be judged on those transformational issues? Not necessarily how the crisis was were dealt with, but issues like Kiwi Build 
transport, climate change, child poverty and inequality? Yeah, I, I think that um, that she will not be um, uh, regarded historically as being strong in those those spaces. And I think, you know, it does come back to that conversation that I kind of came in to about the capital gains tax. Um, you know, that that was, I think, a significant blunder um, to rule that out. It was ruled out because at the time they did not have the numbers to take it through in their coalition um, agreement with New Zealand First. But to rule it out for your entire time as prime minister um, was the was the unnecessary mistake. And that particular um, issue is so closely uh, related to addressing the housing crisis that they've struggled with mm. and therefore addressing child poverty, which is deeply connected to unaffordable housing. Um, you know, it, it was quite a fundamental blunder in my view. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm sad that, you know, now that we know that there was a term where Labour had um, a majority and could effectively vote through what it liked, um, the, that she in the previous term had made that um, commitment um, really stymied their progress on some of these transformational areas. Good on you for being so clear about that, Sue. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I think we need to do another entire podcast with you, please. We, we psycho <laughs> and psychoanalyze the New Zealand Labour Party. No, no. I, That's I only because think... you can't see me. You, if you could <laughs> see me, you wouldn't want to have a podcast. Oh, absolutely. No, Sue, we'd love to have you on again. 